The economy is crumbling, they say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling, revolution's on the way, but I could never be a Marxist, it goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell, he went with Danny Baker. So you silly disco songs and reading Melody Baker, I'm singing down the bunker. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Kas Mudde. My guest today is Lenka Bustikova. Lenka is currently still an associate professor of political science at Arizona State University, but will soon join St. Anthony's College at Oxford University as associate professor in European Union and comparative East European politics. Her research focuses on party politics, democratic decay, ethnicity and clientelism, with special reference to Eastern Europe. She's the author of the awards-winning book Extreme Reactions, Radical Right Mobilization in Eastern Europe, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2019. Lenka is currently working on a new book project about the social origins of illiberalism, exploring the relationship between, and I quote, uncivil society, unquote, and political radicalization in Eastern Europe. Much to talk about this. Welcome to the podcast, Lenka. Thank you for having me, Kas. I'm very excited to be here. So I'll start with my standard introductory questions. What was the first sports team you ever supported? I grew up in Prague, so the choice was always between Sparta Praha and Slavia Praha. And I have always leaned towards Slavia because, historically speaking, the fan base of Slavia is much more diverse. Second, what is your favorite political song? My favorite song is a song by Marta Kubišová, a Czech singer. It's called The Prayer for Marta. It was originally recorded in 1968. It was written for a soap opera about a Prague butcher. But after the invasion of the Warsaw Pact, it became a political song. And in 1989, it resurfaced and it was a symbol of the Velvet Revolution. It's a ballad that calls for peace and harmony and therefore it's timeless. Absolutely. And what is finally your favorite political book? So I'm smitten by Karol Spolany's Great Transformation, especially the first section of the book that is called Satanic Mill. I read it for the first time in Budapest when I was a student at Central European University. And it speaks to the issue of social disruption caused by markets and to the issue of shredding communal bonds of social solidarity into the pieces. And I think, unfortunately, the book ages very well. So, for example, in Orban's famous 2014 speech, in which he calls for the creation of illiberal states, I could hear Polanyi. I could sort of see myself reading Polanyi in Budapest when I was a student there. And Orban understands that many of his voters yearn and desire strong communal ties, he masterfully exploits fears and disruptions that Polanyi already discovered in this great book about great transformation. So we've already made the link to your study object. How did you come to study the radical right in Eastern Europe? It was a gut feeling. Uh, when I came to Duke uh, to do my PhD, I wanted to write about fertility decline in Eastern Europe, which actually mesmerizes me until today. But the faculty was like, eh, no, <laughs> not really. And then I was thinking about some ideas about political economy. And then Duke had an exchange with Humboldt. And that summer, I was going between Berlin and Prague. And it suddenly hit me that People don't care about money, but they care about groups. They care about ethnicity, group-based solidarity, group-based hostility. And that is the source of conflict, really, in my view, of political conflict. And my dissertation advisor, Herbert Kitschel, wrote a very famous book about the radical right. 
He told me, look, it's your choice. It's a niche topic. It's very risky since the radical right was, and in my view, is still quite marginal in Eastern Europe. And so I just went with it and I don't regret it. So you've already said that you think that it might still be niche today. What is the state of the radical right in Eastern Europe? Because in the Western media, it's often seen as much stronger in the East than in the West. Do you agree with that? I'm probably marginal in this aspect, but I believe that there are differences between the East and the West. So a lot of it depends on classification. I stick to a very narrow definition of the radical right as niche or parties that campaign on single issues. That is how many of the original literature has viewed radical right parties. And so if you stick with that classification, you will not think that the ruling parties in Poland and Hungary are radical right parties. I think of them as slightly different animals, as radicalized or very radicalized radical right parties. So if you agree with this classification and with this view, then you are left with like a handful of parties in Eastern Europe that very often have difficulty crossing the parliamentary threshold. So I still do believe that in comparative perspective, the radical right in the East is weaker. Again, if you have a very narrow definition of the radical right, however, the radicalized mainstream parties is a force to be reckoned with, and they very aggressively and successfully compete over social conservative voters these days. And also one final issue I want to raise is that when I started writing the book, a lot of the mobilization in Eastern Europe evolved around issues of ethnicity, but that has changed quite a bit over time. A lot of the mobilization now shifted to sexuality, gender equality and LGBTQ rights. However, on that issue, the radical right, I think, is outmaneuvered and outsmarted by mainstream parties and radicalized mainstream parties. Okay, I just want to make this clear for the listeners and a bit for myself as well. So when you speak about the radical right going forward in the interview, you're not speaking about Fides, you're not speaking about law and justice, you're not speaking about SDS in Slovenia, you're speaking about Confederacja in Poland, Jobbik previously in Hungary, mm -hmm. I assume. And what are some other radical right parties that we're talking about then? So my favorite radical right party, which I think is also a border case, is Estonian ECRE, which is formulating a very interesting electoral strategy to court Russian-speaking voters in Estonia. So that is a quite fascinating shift to observe. Another of my parties of the day is disintegrating Kotleba's party in Slovakia that is having some splits. So, you know, I'm talking really about the parties at the flank. And, you know, I'm quite aware of the fact that my view is marginal on this issue. I think these beasts like Fidesz and Law and Justice parties are different, even though the ideology is so blurred at this moment that it's hard to, you know, on social identity issues, it's hard to differentiate. The book is called Extreme Reactions, Radical Right Mobilization in Eastern Europe. And you provide an original explanation for the electoral success of radical right parties in Eastern Europe. Can you tell us the main thesis of the book? So the book uh, links radical right voting to the ascendance of minorities to power, the accommodation of their demands and policy backlash. 
The controversial statement of the book is that radical right voting is not rooted in xenophobia and economic uncertainty. The book argues that radical right parties are fueled by dissatisfaction and resentment of politically ascendant minority groups. That does not mean that they are not xenophobic. It means that they are not uniquely xenophobic, since many of the other parties or their political cousins explain equally high levels of xenophobia. And I show that empirically in the book. Sort of the bad news of the book is that when ethnic minorities are, you know, so to speak, keep their mouth shut, when they remain politically quiet, when they're excluded from cabinets, the radical right parties fail to gain traction in the electorate. And when they are included in coalitions, when they have something that Giovanni Sartori called a bilateral opposite or a party on the other side, ethnic party or social liberal party, they will find fertile electoral soil. And so the book argues that the conditions for the rise and fall of the radical right are very volatile, and it links governmental policies that yield to demands of minorities to far-right mobilization. So in the sum, the book's main argument is that the changes in policy status quo lead to radical right backlash and extreme reactions, hence the title of the book. So is that similar to the broader cultural backlash thesis then that you hear in the US, for example, but also in Western Europe, even though we're talking more about domestic minorities in Eastern Europe than about immigrants and their descendants in, let's say, the West? The book makes it explicit that the backlash is linked to changes in policy. So the book looks a lot about changes in language rights and language accommodation, among other things, and attitudes towards state spending on minorities. So the problem with the culture backlash thesis is that it cannot explain why radical right parties vouchers quite violently oscillate over time. Why is it that they go up and down, you know, from election to election? Why is it that suddenly immigration will become volatile now, but not five years before or afterhand. And also we know that once you become an adult, you know, with some caveats, a lot of the group attitudes are baked. So if you want to explain far-right voting by attitudes that are relatively stable over time, to me, that has always been the weakness of the so-called demand theory. But policy is volatile. Policy changes. Policies accommodate groups. Policies also adapt based on how group boundaries also adapt. Groups change and their definitions change over time. As you know, in the United States, the Irish community has been in the past, you know, sidelined that that's no longer the case. So the groups are not here forever. The groups change, the group boundaries change. So in the book, I really try to track changes in governmental policies that can then be linked to counter-mobilization and dissatisfaction. So that's a little bit different from the argument by Ruth Koopmans and Paul Statham, for example, on Western Europe in their book Contested Citizenship, where they link it to the mobilization of minority groups. You're speaking here specifically about national government policies in favor of or in response to minority mobilization. Yeah, I mean, most of these states are quite small. The policies are usually quite centralized. So 
you know, changes in language policies, changing in schooling, changes in what form your last name can have, whether you have to have OVA or whether you can use Hungarian ethnic name, all this is determined by states. So that's how policies are made at the state level. And there is a process of government formation and demanding or pressuring or fighting for the expansion of rights that is also typically at the state level. This might be different in large countries or highly devolved countries or decentralized countries, but the book looks at policies issued at the central level that, for example, in the Ukraine had huge regional repercussions because when the language law was changed in uh, 2012 in Ukraine, immediately the Donetsk and Luhansk regions declared Russian as a regional language. So, you know, the adaptation can be local, but the policy is at the state level. So I wanted to talk about that because in addition to a cross-national comparison, you also have two case studies. One, mobilization against Hungarians in Slovakia, which since the 1990s has been studied quite a lot. And the other, the mobilization against Russians in Ukraine. You already said a little bit about that. Was this mobilization fundamentally different from the mobilization against the Russians in, for instance, Estonia and Latvia in the 1990s? And in what way did it mobilize Ukrainian radical right? So the fundamental issue in the Baltics and in Ukraine is the same, which is what is the status of the Russian language? And in all these countries, there have been attempts to elevate the status of the Russian language that creates you know, a massive degree of anxiety and mobilization. But there are differences. And one has to do with group size and also with sort of regional effect. So, for example, in the book, I track the politicization of language rights in Ukraine that were not always politicized. I mean, that again, that goes back to this issue that policies go in and out, and sometimes things are not politicized, sometimes they become very important. So, for example, I looked at the percentage of children schooled in Ukraine. So, in 1990s in Donetsk, about 6% of children in primary and elementary schools were schooled in Ukrainian. By 2005-2006, it increased to 29%. And of course, the enrollment in Russian decreased. And the polarization reached its peak in 2012 with the introduction of the language law. Immediately when that happened, Donetsk and Luhansk, which was seized by Russia in 2014, they immediately declared Russian as a language of official regional status. And the West went just crazy after this. So this created extreme reaction in Western parts of Ukraine. And the book sort of ties this extreme reaction to language policy to the rise of Svoboda, which is the Ukrainian radical right Party. The big difference between the Baltics and Ukraine and the book has some thinking about group size. What does it mean when groups are small or big? And so I argue in the book that small groups are better for far-right mobilization because I distinguish between status threat and status reversal. And so in Ukraine, when the Russian speakers, so there's a difference between Russians and Russian speakers, but the Russian speakers were a large group that could threaten the dominant or not so dominant group with a status reversal. I argue that's more conducive to mobilization behind the mainstream party that can actually block the threat. If the groups are electorally small and don't have as much power, the book then argues that it will benefit more the radical right than the mainstream right or the radicalized mainstream right. So the size is an issue, but fundamentally, language is a you know hotly contested issue in Eastern Europe, and it speaks to the power balance between language groups and ethnic groups. Talking about Ukraine, in the media, there is this kind of portrayal of the European far right in general as Putin's puppets. 
as if they're all pro-Russia, pro-Putin. Is that accurate? And is that still accurate after the Russian reinvasion of Ukraine? So it's big time important. There are some outliers such as Hungary and Serbia, but the threat from Russia has everybody on the edge. Most East European countries understand that they are next on Putin's chopping block. Nobody wants to be Belarus. And so the so-called puppets are very careful. Some parties have never been puppets. In some countries, far-right parties, radical-right parties allied with Putin's agenda temporarily for strategic purposes. And that's over now. And in some way, in my view, radical right in Eastern Europe returns to early 1990s, when most of the radical right parties were anti-Soviet and anti-Russian, as countries broke away from the brutality of the Soviet rule, and they celebrated independence. So Putin now is a existential threat and radical right parties at its core are advocates of sovereignty and nobody wants to be put in slave. So this will not resonate with the voters. And I think this love affair is over. Now you have a new project that is about illiberalism in Eastern Europe. What is illiberalism and what role does it play in Eastern Europe? So the project explores links between illiberalism and democratic erosion and resilience. I like the term illiberalism because I think it allows us to think about democratic decline in a more nuanced way. So not all democracies are liberal democracies. Not all decay or democratic erosion is illiberal. So, for example, a shift from liberal to majoritarian democracy is illiberal, but of course the rules of electoral contestation are preserved. Political corruption can undermine democracy, but doesn't have to be illiberal. And so a lot of the red flags that indicate there is a relationship between illiberalism and democratic erosion is typically linked to efforts to strip away minority rights, including ethnic rights, rights of small religious groups, rights to sexual and bodily autonomy, And so typically, it's a canary in the cold mine. The suppression of these rights signals that there is a shift to majority rule or minority rule that governs over a majority, as it is in the United States, in order to buttress efforts to gain power. So in my view, what I'm seeing in Eastern Europe is that mainstream and radicalized mainstream parties came up with a very appealing message and package to socially conservative voters. And I want to understand why is this package appealing and who is behind it. And liberalism seems to be sort of a key into this problem and also its ability to think differently about different aspects of politicization of rights and democratic erosion. And so there's a clear link for you between illiberalism and majoritarianism. I remember some debates in the 1990s where the argument was that Central East European democracies generally had a much stronger majoritarian mentality, particularly at the elite level. The idea that they had about democracy was if you win, you get to do what you want to do for four years, and if people have a problem, you vote them out, which, of course, is very similar to the US or to the UK. But in Leipzig's terms, Western Europe is mostly consensual. In what way, though, is there then a shift between the 1990s, soft majoritarianism, if you want, and the current situation of hard majoritarianism? What are some of the most important and most worrying developments that you are thinking about? 
So one big shift is shift to issues of sexuality. That has not been the case in the early 1990s. And you're absolutely right that a lot of the East European constitutions, you know, you read them and they will tell you, this is a country of Czechs, this is a country of Croats. So this is absolutely enshrined in the constitutions. Obviously, in the 1990s, sovereignty came back, everybody applauded it. And then with the European accession, pluralistic elements were introduced into the Eastern European systems. And, you know, minority protection is the fundamental issue that they have to adhere to, which, you know, a lot of the governments don't see be so thrilled about it. But I think the big change Something that I think nobody could foresee is incredibly ruthless mobilization against women's rights and LGBTQ rights. That seems to be, in a way, a global phenomenon now. So, you know, there is a lot of evidence now, a lot of the groups that advocate for extremist, socially conservative positions on LGBTQ and women's rights are linked to evangelical groups in the United States or, you know, Putin's groups. And I think the assault is unprecedented. That's why I started doing this project. A lot of this really strongly resonates with voters because a lot of voters in Eastern Europe have social conservative views. And it seems to me that a lot of the parties found new winning formula to appeal to the voters with the help of churches and civil society or uncivil society organizations to secure a very powerful voter base. Using the electoral wins, of course, then they can change the electoral rules and so on and so on, bend the institutions. So you just mentioned this term, uncivil society. What do you mean by it and what role does it play in the broader phenomenon of illiberalism in the region? So uncivil society, to put it very crudely, is a civil society that is not committed to pluralism and minority protection. I think that's the best I can do at this moment. It has violent and nonviolent forms. Very often it uses legal and institutionalized forms to advocate for majoritarian policies or policies that prevent the expansion of rights. And these groups are very savvy and very, very good at it. So what I have in mind are churches, socially conservative groups, youth organizations associated with the radical right that make deals or ally with parties in exchange for a voter-rich pool of socially conservative voters. And these alliances are effective and savvy. And I think this is, you know, the major difference between the early 1990s and now is the surge of social conservatism. And right-wing parties, including radicalized and radicalized parties, learned very skillfully how to exploit democratic procedures and democratic rules to expand power and, you know, pursue policy that are that are in favor of. There is, for some reason, the so-called civil society, as much as there is a protest and fighting, they don't seem to be really that good at politics. But the illiberal civil society or the uncivil society seems to be really winning, you know, the long chess game. Right. And that resonates very strongly for the United States, too. Finally, what is the greatest misunderstanding about the radical right in Eastern Europe? So I think there are two misunderstandings. One is Eastern Europe is not a monolithic block. And so nobody should be surprised that radical right in Estonia is different from radical right in Croatia. It's a diverse region, and I think it has to be appreciated more. At a more substantive level, I think immigration is misunderstood. So the refugee crisis brought convergence between the East and the West. You know, it was a great learning lesson from the West to politicize immigration. However, over time, if you look at the census data, what is absolutely striking is that wealthy East European countries became magnets for migration. 
The new census data was like mind-boggling. So there are deep changes in the ethnic composition. And yet you don't see any radical right mobilization against groups that actually are on the ground, against migrants or immigrants that are on the ground. It's always a mobilization against the ghost threat. So there were massive waves of refugees after Yugoslavia. There was growing Chinese minorities in Hungary and elsewhere. A lot of Ukrainians left after 2014. And nothing, you know, not a blip on the radar in terms of radical right mobilization over immigrants on the ground. So I think this is something that needs to be explored more. And certainly the refugee crisis is now showing that one day you can be, you know, spraying refugees with water cannons. And the other day, you know, you open borders to, you know, two, two million, three million refugees from Ukraine. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Lenka. Thank you for having me. You can follow Lenka Bustikova on Twitter at at LBustikova, and you can order her book Extreme Reactions, Radical Right Mobilization in Eastern Europe, published by Cambridge University Press in 2019, at or through your independent bookstore. Thank you for listening to Radical. The music is from the Gonads, with the classic song Karl Marx supported Millwall, and I'm your host, Kas Mudde. If you like the episode, please subscribe to Radical on your podcast platform of choice. And don't forget to rate us. Till the next time. The economy is crumbling. They say it's at its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell. He went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs and reading Melody Baker. I'm seeing that at Dunkow. Playing with his beard. No wonder that that's Capitao turned out a little weird.